days, uh, several pastors got together to seek the face of the Lord. And at that retreat, I'll never forget the first night as a couple of the pastors got together uh, in the cabin that we were staying in in eastern Oregon. I met a, a gentleman who also served as a pastor, and he noticed a book that I um, had with me. Surprise, surprise, I had a book with me. And the book concerned the wrath of Almighty God. And this pastor took one look at the book, and he promptly weighed in, and he said these words, I will not soon forget the words that flowed forth from his mouth. He said, quote, I don't think God is a God of wrath, close quote. I went to hand him the book, and I told him that I think he probably uh, would enjoy reading it, and he literally went like this. He said, I, I don't even want to touch that thing. Get that book away from me. When I asked how he could believe such a thing, that is to say a God who was not a God of wrath, his next statement was equally shocking. He said, quote, I don't think God is angry with anyone, close quote. Sorry to report this morning that the exchange that I had with my pastor friend that evening in eastern Oregon is not an isolated incident. Christian leaders have and will continue to promote the notion, I would add the unbiblical notion, that God accepts all and judges none. Please remember that such a belief, the belief that God is not a God of wrath, is based on what this individual wanted God to be like, not on how the scriptures portray the God of the Bible. We must constantly guard against a tendency to, to fabricate God or create God in the image of man or, or uh, shove aside difficult doctrines. Just because a given doctrine doesn't line up with how you or I feel or line up with our experience or does not tug upon our emotional apron strings does not cast doubt on the truthfulness of a given doctrine. It's been many years ago now, I shouldn't say many, several years ago, a former pastor by the name of Rob Bell wrote a book entitled Love Wins. In that book, Rob Bell is critical of a, a quote-unquote story that each of us this morning are very familiar with. It is a story, as Rob Bell says, about a God who inflicts unrelenting punishment on people because they didn't do or say or believe the correct things in a brief window of time called life. Rob Bell goes on to say, this is not a very good story. Is it possible, as Bell sold thousands of copies of this book, is it possible that Rob Bell is on target? Is it possible that what we have been raised with for many, many years, the notion of the, the biblical story that says if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, you will endure the almighty wrath of God for all eternity? Is it possible this doesn't make for a good story, as Bell says? Here's the problem. And I can sum it up by saying this. The story is true. And it's a very good story. The Bible, in so many words, promises eternal life and forgiveness for every man and woman and boy and girl who will turn from their sin and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible promises also eternal judgment for the unrepentant, for those who refuse to believe in Jesus, for those who refuse to obey Jesus. John the Apostle adds in John chapter 3, verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God remains on him. And so we find that the story is not only a true story. This story that emerges in the pages of Scripture is a good story. And it is a good story because it is God's story. It is, as you have likely heard, what we would label history, his 
story. And whenever we talk about God's story, it is indeed a good story. This morning, I want to challenge you with this, that learning about the wrath of God, something that many of us uh, don't hear anymore in evangelical subculture, learning about the wrath of God reminds Christians of exactly what they have been delivered from. I talked to someone this morning. I really appreciated the conversation where uh, some of you are accustomed now when someone asks you how you're doing, you respond with something like, uh, better than I deserve. And what this individual told me was, hey, it's really catching on. I hear a lot of people saying that. And as I share with my friend, it's one thing to say it as a line. It's one thing to say it just to get attention or make people raise their eyebrows. But as I said to my friend, I said, actually, I think people are really believing it. When they say better than I deserve, it's, how are you doing, Dave? Better than I deserve. I deserve to go to hell. Do any of you deserve to go to hell? You see, we're, we are sinners by nature and choice. And apart from uh, the grace of God that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, each of us would be destined for eternal judgment. Learning about the wrath of God will remind not only believers of what they have been rescued from, it will remind unbelievers that God will, that he certainly will punish sin, and that such a punishment is consistent with his holy character. Learning about the wrath of God will remind all of us, believers and unbelievers alike, of God's intense hatred of sin and the length that he went to to vanquish it. To vanquish the power and the penalty of sin. The title of the message is very simple this morning. We've entitled the message, The Wrath of God. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to a place where the gospel emerges very clearly. And it might surprise you when I tell you to turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 34. Would you stand with me as we read two verses in Exodus chapter 34? Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6. Here's the exchange between the living God and Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come humbly as we intend to learn more about uh, your holy wrath. God, forgive us as a church, forgive us as a nation, forgive us as a people who have neglected this very important attribute that is clearly taught in the pages of Scripture. I pray, God, that you would remind us uh, on this day of the seriousness of sin. I pray that you would remind us of the great length that you went to when you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to to vanquish the power of sin, to vanquish the penalty of sin, to vanquish sin's very presence one day. So I pray that we would be uh, reacquainted with your holy character. We'd be reacquainted with the the message of the gospel as we study this character. Virgin, your son's (coughs) worthy name we pray. Amen. (coughs) Excuse me. It was the Puritan Richard Baxter who uttered these words several hundred years ago. He said, as a dying man, I preach to dying men. As a dying man, I preach to dying men, sure to never preach again. That is the mindset I come to you with today as one who is a dying man who preaches to dying people at Christ Fellowship. And the framework I have is this might be my last sermon. That's the framework that the Puritan Richard Baxter had when he preached. This might be the last one. And so if this is the last one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unleash. Both guns are going to open up, right? 
And so let's have that same mindset as we come to the word of God today. Scripture declares very clearly that our God is a God of wrath. And there are many passages that we could turn to to anchor these thoughts in. And we will, in fact, look at several passages today. But I want to begin here in Exodus 34 because of the familiarity we have with this passage and the attributes, <coughs> excuse me, that emerge in this passage. Do you see the attributes that we've dis- discovered already? We have learned about the mercy of God. We've learned about the grace of God. We've learned about the steadfast love of God, about the the amazing faithfulness of God. We have learned that God has a passion to forgive sinners. Isn't it amazing that our God is such a loving God? In fact, this text says that he is slow to anger. Is anyone glad this morning that God is slow to anger? I'm certainly glad he's slow to anger. But this passage also tells us, apart from all these amazing attributes of love and mercy and grace, that he will by no means clear the guilty. An erosion has taken place in the church. It's an erosion that has been afoot for at least the last 50 years or so, maybe the last 100 years or so, where attributes like love and mercy and grace... The attributes that we are so um, excited to learn about, that those attributes get elevated over the attributes like justice and wrath. And what we find is that over time, those attributes of love and mercy and grace tend to overshadow the attributes of justice and wrath. And sometimes we find that an attribute like wrath is not only overshadowed, it is eliminated altogether. Wayne Grudem says, when the scripture speaks about God's attributes, it never singles out one attribute of God as more important than all the rest. And I hope that's one thing that we have learned together in this series. Theologians refer to it as the the simplicity of God, that there is not one attribute that is, is more beneficial than another. God is love. God is gracious. God is long-suffering. God is merciful. God is just. God is a God of wrath. Grudem continues. He says, we must remember that God's whole being includes all his attributes. He is entirely loving, entirely merciful, entirely just, and so forth. Every attribute of God that we find in Scripture is true of all God's being. And we therefore can say that every attribute of God also qualifies every other attribute. And so with this great reality in mind that concerns the attributes of God, I want to continue with the pattern that we have developed over the last several months by giving you a definition of the wrath of God. And actually today, I will give you several definitions. I want to begin by looking at the word in the New Testament, the word that is translated wrath. It's a word that can be translated as anger or vengeance. The wrath of God points to his anger or his vengeance. The wrath of God also points to the fury of God, the fury or the indignation of God. It means this, anger exhibited in punishment. The wrath of God is anger exhibited in punishment. As we've done with many of the other attributes, we're asking, what do the theologians say about the wrath of God? One theologian I've already cited, Dr. Wayne Grudem, says this. He says that God's wrath means that he intensely hates sin. He intensely hates all sin. John Stott, a writer that many of you are familiar with, he's a a British man who went to be with the Lord not too many years ago and wrote the classic basic Christianity John Stott says that the wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. A.W. Tozer says the wrath of God is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. 
Tozer goes on and says, It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is the moving cause of that just sentence which he passes upon evildoers. He says, God is angry against sin because it is a rebelling against his authority, a wrong done to his sovereignty. Well, that's what the theologians say. Exactly what does the scripture say about the wrath of God? I'm not going to have you turn to these passages this morning. Hold your finger in Exodus 34, but listen to a few snapshots of the wrath of God and see how it emerges in the pages of the Old Testament. Exodus 32, 9 and 10. The Lord says to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Deuteronomy chapter 9, 7 and 8. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb. You provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. In 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 13, we learn more of the wrath of God. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. And then at the end of the book of Isaiah in chapter 66, we read, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind. To render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. One thing we need to remember about the wrath of God is the wrath of God is never impulsive. You see, God does not exert his wrath on a whim. He's never out of control. It is rather the righteous response of a holy God that burns hot with fury against sin. Now, really, by way of introduction to help define the wrath of God further, I want to share with you that there are really several different kinds of wrath. You tend to think of wrath and immediately your mind goes to hell. And indeed, that's one of the kinds of wrath that emerge in Scripture. But we see there are others as well. We begin with what you might refer to it as cataclysmic wrath. Cataclysmic wrath is the wrath of God that may emerge in in something like the flood or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Cataclysmic wrath. Or then you might refer to something known as consequential wrath. You know this as the law of sowing and reaping. You live a certain way. You live in defiance of the living God. And some of you have known people who have fallen under the hand of almighty wrath of God for consistent and persistent rebellion that lasts year after year after year. In Romans chapter 1, we see a third kind of wrath that you might refer to as the wrath of abandonment. The wrath of abandonment where God says in Romans 1, I give them over to their shameful lusts. It's at this point a a hands-off policy where God says, I will give you in your freedom the ability to do whatever you want to do. And it looks like you're pursuing a blatantly sinful lifestyle. I give you over to your shameful lusts. But we learn from Exodus 34 that God will not let them off the hook. He will not leave the guilty in a condition where punishment does not take place. Another kind of wrath you might refer to as eschatological wrath. You say one more time, eschatological wrath. The word eschatology, the study of last things. And so when when we come face to face with eschatological wrath, we're referring to the final day 
of the Lord where his wrath will be unleashed. And then finally, the kind of wrath that we're all very familiar with. That is his eternal wrath where the unregenerate will bear the full weight of the wrath of God as they're judged in hell for all eternity. That's a brief definition of wrath. I want to move on to take the remainder of our time to look at a a description of wrath and look at several passages of Scripture that will help us to understand it. And to do this, the outline will be actually very, very simple. I just want to look at three very descriptive uh, portraits of wrath that emerge in the Scripture. The first is this. God has a right to wrath. God has a right to wrath. And I want you to see this emerge in the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 6. And while you're turning there, I'll, I'll give some uh, a bit of context. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see that the, the ark of God is being transported to Jerusalem. And there's something very important that we need to recognize about this process of, of, of uh, taking the ark to Jerusalem. God in his word had told his people that that certain things are required when the ark of God is moved. One of the stipulations is that the ark, according to Exodus chapter 25, is to be equipped with rings and poles. God gave very strict guidelines with how the ark was to be transported. And in this case, we see in Exodus 25, it's to be equipped with rings and poles. Tuck that away in the back of your mind, because we're going to see in 2 Samuel 6, something that you might not notice apart from this principle. You're going to see there are no rings and there are no poles. And in your mind, you should be thinking, if I disobey God... I may open myself up to what? The wrath of Almighty God. There's something else that we learn that emerges in the book of Numbers, chapter 4, verse 15. It goes like this. Don't touch it. Don't touch the ark. Now notice what happens with me in 2 Samuel, chapter 6, verse 1. David, again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. Can you imagine 30,000 people? How many people live in Everson? I just checked yesterday. 2,100. Now, I'm not a math wizard, but I know that 2,100, call it 2,000, you would need 15 Eversons, roughly, maybe 14 Eversons, to create 30,000 people. David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 altogether. They arose and they went with the people and they were with him from Bel Judah to bring up from the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they notice what happens here. They carried the ark of God on a what? On a new cart. Does that make you wonder what's going on here? A new cart. Dispense with the pain, with 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 the 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 original way that God told them to to uh, transport the ark. Get, of the, get rid of the rings and the poles. We've got a new way of doing it, right? We might say in our culture, it's the postmodern way to do it, right? So they're going to transport the ark with a a new methodology, and they brought it out to the house of Benadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah. Remember what we, who, who we learned about last week? Uzziah. A man who was a a godly man, a king, who near the end of his life, he decided, I'm not going to be godly anymore. Guess what happened to him? God gave him leprosy. God has a right to wrath. So, different individual here, Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the, the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the ox stumbled. Now that might not seem significant to you, but here's one thing we know about Uzzah. Uzzah knows that God had prescribed in his word, keep your grubby paws off the ark. 
There, 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 was, there, there was nothing that was ambiguous here. Uzzah knows he was never to touch the ark. And what we find in verse 6 is as, as they were transporting the ark in the new way, not in the way prescribed by God. So they had already disobeyed to begin with. The people carrying it, they stumbled. And he didn't want the ark to, to touch the filthy, dirty mud. And so he reached out to grab it, to secure it. It's as if to say he thought he was doing the right thing. But here's what he failed to remember. That his hand was a sinful hand. It was as filthy as the dirt that the ark was about to fall upon. Notice what happens. Verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Now imagine, imagine you are in that party that you have been celebrating with instruments. And there's, you know, how the, how the Jewish people, there's, there's something the Jewish people have over us. Many things, I think. They knew how to throw a party. I mean, they, they were getting into it. Isn't that great for a Baptist crowd? We could learn something, right? They're dancing, they're, they're singing, they're shouting. It's just a great time. But evidently, they didn't realize that they were transporting the ark in an unbiblical manner. No one pointed it out. And then what happens is Uzzah decides to reach out his hand to steady the ark. Imagine you're there and boom, there is no negotiation. There is no second chance. God Almighty strikes Uzzah down. He exerts his almighty wrath on Uzzah. He failed to take the holiness of God seriously and he paid the ultimate price. Would you turn with me to the book of Leviticus? Leviticus chapter 10. In Leviticus chapter 10, we see another example of two individuals who failed to take seriously the word of the Lord. The characters in this story are the guys Nadab and Abihu. And Nadab and Abihu did what is referred to in the pages of the Old Testament as they offered strange fire before the Lord. And it probably won't surprise you to learn that to offer, quote-unquote, strange fire to the Lord was prohibited in the Old Testament economy. It's just like Uzzah. He knew he was never to touch the ark. Likewise, Nadab and Abihu, they knew that it was absolutely forbidden to offer strange fire before the Lord. Notice as the story unfolds, verse 1. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. As some translations refer to it, strange fire, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said among those who are near me. I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. Something very interesting happens, and Aaron held his peace. If you were to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 6, you see something fascinating that occurs. David did not hold his peace. David was very upset with what happened at Uzzah and had to later repent for his attitude. Remember this first principle. God has a right to his wrath. Secondly, I want you to notice that God always has a reason. God always has a reason for exerting his wrath. God never exerts his wrath without a good reason. Surely A.W. Pink is thinking of a large segment of the church when he said this. He said, our readiness or our reluctancy to meditate upon the wrath of God becomes a sure test of our heart's attitude toward him. If we do not truly rejoice in God for what he is in himself, and that because of all his perfections, which are eternally resident in him, then how dwelleth the love of God? One theologian says it like this. God's wrath, of course, 
must not be construed in any measure as uncontrolled or irrational fury, nor is God himself malicious, vindictive, or spiteful. God's wrath is simply his instinctive, holy indignation and the settled opposition of his holiness to sin, which because he is righteous, expresses itself in judicial punishment. There are other examples in the Old Testament of the almighty wrath of God. In Exodus 15, God exerts his wrath on the Egyptians. We read, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Moreover, God exerts his wrath on the rebellious, as we have learned. Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. When the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Additionally, God exerts his wrath on Judah in the pages of the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 23. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah. And then in the book of Nahum. In the book of Nahum, we see that God exerts his almighty wrath on his enemies. Let me read it for you. Nahum 1, starting in verse 2, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. We saw that in Exodus 34. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Notice verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? And here's what we hear in our culture. Pastor, that's great. But you know what they're going to say? That was the... That was the Old Testament. Wait, from this way. That was the Old Testament. You don't understand that they say God in the Old Testament, we will concede, is certainly a God of wrath. But God in the New Testament is a God of love. And when you hear that, you come face to face with someone who does not have a biblical portrait of God. Because we know this, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is a, love, God is a God both of love and wrath. In the New Testament, God exerts his wrath on people who suppress the truth of God. I referred to this earlier, but notice in Romans chapter 1. Beginning in verse 18, he says, Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Notice that Paul doesn't say some ungodliness or a little ungodliness, but God, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then Paul describes what that suppression of truth looks like. It was happening in first century Rome, and it's happening now in our culture. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse for although they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they they became futile in their thinking I remember the first time I traveled to the Republic of Belarus I asked a Belarusian what the Russian translation said there they became futile in their thinking I'll never forget this exchange he says it says they became crazy 
They became crazy in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Some of you are here today and you say, what's happening in America is a travesty. When the Supreme Court decided that homosexual marriage is now a right, you say to yourself, what is happening? Where is God in all this? Remember this principle from Exodus 34, that God will by no means declare or or, or wipe the sins away from the unrepentant. He will not clear the guilty. And what we need to remember in our culture is this, that applies not only to homosexual offenders, that applies to heterosexual offenders. Every unrepentant person will face the wrath of Almighty God. We see in the New Testament that God will exert his wrath on the unrepentant. He will exert his wrath on the disobedient. He will exert his wrath on those who do not know God and find their satisfaction in him. He will exert his wrath during the tribulation period. God will exert his wrath on anyone who bends their knee to the Antichrist. Revelation 14.10, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels. Watch this. And the presence of the Lamb. That is Jesus Christ. We read in Revelation 14, 9 that God will additionally exert his wrath at Armageddon. And so I would pose this question in light of God's wrath that emerges in the pages of the Old Testament and the wrath that occurs in the pages of the New. How, how can God uphold his glory yet at the same time be merciful to people? That leads to our third and final principle. And that is that God decreed, the answer to the question is that God decreed that his son the Lord Jesus Christ, would drink the full expression of his wrath. Now think about this with me. When we say that God decrees that his son would drink the full expression of his wrath on the cross, think what happens when someone like Rob Bell, think what happens when someone in in our culture denies the wrath of God. It sounds good. It feels right. It's more comfortable. We'd feel far more comfortable if we didn't have to deal with the wrath of God this morning. But when we remove the wrath of God in light of this statement, the gospel perishes. The solution to the problem is that God decreed that Jesus would drink the full expression of his almighty wrath. So when we take the wrath of God and we hide it under the covers... That's being a minimalist or a reductionist. Or we eliminate it altogether. Here's what we say to the gospel. Farewell. Because the gospel absolutely disintegrates. It's what I like to refer to as the logic of the cross. And I want to take a few minutes to conclude by looking at four critical assertions. There's not a place in your notes this morning for this. I would turn your page over and... Jot down a few notes, four critical assertions that will inform our hearts and our minds about the wrath of Almighty God. Most notably, the logic of the cross. Number one, God's righteousness consists in this. God's righteousness consists in this. You might say righteousness equals. Righteousness equals a love for his glory. The righteousness of God consists in this, in that he has a love for his own glory. That's step one. Number two, if God, and that is a big if for some people. I hope it's a sense for everyone here. If God does everything for his own glory, 
Or since God does everything for his own glory, it follows that he will take great pleasure in every person who shares in that delight. Let me say it a different way. If it's true that God is consumed by his own glory, if that is true, it follows then that everyone here who also takes pleasure in that, who share in that great delight, that brings great glory to God. That brings great glory to God. Step three, God would not be loving then. Listen, God would not be loving to those who seek him. Let me ask you this. I'll ask for a raise of hands. How many of you are seeking to love God, know God, worship God, obey God, submit to God today? How many of you want to do that? If you were raising your hand, God would not be loving to any of you who are seeking him if he did not vent the full power of his wrath against those who are unrepentant. God would not be loving for every one of us who long to seek after God if he did not vent the full power of his wrath against people who remain unrepentant. Far from being in opposition to one another, the love of God and the wrath of God are simply two ways that he makes it abundantly clear that he himself fully honors his name. Finally, step four. I would ask this question. How many of you would say, you don't need to raise your hand anymore. We'll get tired. How many of you say, we're thinking in your own mind, are we sinners by nature and choice? When a new baby is born, is that a, a sinner who was born? I hope all of us answer yes, because David said, in sin, my mother conceived me. If it can be shown then, that humanity has horribly sinned against God, then our sense of justice should call for a severe punishment. Have you ever watched a television show or a movie where there was someone who is convicted of murder and you think to yourself, where's the gallows? Have you thought that? Where someone is convicted of murders and you say, that person should go to jail for the rest of their life. Or that person should go to the electric chair. That person should stand before a firing squad. Why? Because we have been hardwired for justice. If it could be shown that humanity is horribly sinned against God, then our sense of justice must call for a severe punishment. And the biblical teaching of eternal misery in hell for the unrepentant reaches or fulfills that requirement. Dan Fuller says it like this. We should understand that our total depravity primarily consists in this. I don't have you think about this just for a minute to, to kind of uh, prime the pump, pump a bit. Why is my sin so bad? Why is your sin so bad? Or greater yet, why is our sin so repugnant to a holy God. Here's what Fuller says. We should understand that our total depravity primarily to consist in heaping the greatest insult upon God by refusing to regard him as trustworthy. When I read that description a long time ago, probably 15 or 16 years ago, it revolutionized the way I viewed sin. You see, most of us are, are raised for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is what the scripture teaches. That the, the wages of sin is death. But some of us haven't gone a step further and asked, why is sin so repugnant? Why is it so black? It's because we, we fail to trust God. If you have a hard time wrapping your minds around that, ask yourself as a parent. If you have children and your children says, they say to you, mom, dad, stick it in your ear. You have no idea what you're talking about. Some of you have experienced that and you know the, the heartbreak that brings. 
On the other hand, some of you have experienced children who you gave them good and godly counsel. And they said, Dad, I don't understand why you're telling me that, but I trust you. I trust you. I can see from some of the looks on your faces, you, wow, there is something when your child trusts you. Wives, when your husband makes a decision in your home and says, I don't think we should purchase this. I don't think we should go there. I don't think we should be involved in this. And the wife says, I I don't get it. I might even disagree, but honey, I trust you. Wives, I can tell you this. I can guarantee you this, that that causes something to happen in the heart of a man when his wife trusts him. I really like the expression on some of the women's face right now because you know what that's like. You even say, honey, I disagree, but I trust you. I will submit to your authority. We should understand that our total depravity primarily to consist in heaping the greatest insult upon God by refusing to regard him as trustworthy. He goes on to say, God can remain loving only by opposing the full fervency of his love for his own glory. Those who oppose him by scorning the opportunity he gives to enjoy that glory. Here's what he means. If you reject the wrath of God, you no longer have a loving God. You see, there have been many throughout church history, and like I mentioned a moment ago, especially the last 50 or 100 years, who with maybe even good motives want to discard the wrath of God. But when you discard the wrath of God, you discard the love of God. And when you discard the love of God, you throw out, you abandon the gospel. And when you abandon the gospel, you are hopeless, for you no longer stand before the God of the Bible. What effect should this doctrine of the wrath of Almighty God have upon us? So let me submit five things to you, practical points of application to send you on your way today. Number one, the wrath of God should have this effect on us. We should take sin seriously because God takes sin seriously. Number two, we should be motivated to share the gospel of grace with people who need the Savior. But pastor, you don't understand. She might laugh at me. Pastor, you you don't understand. It might cause a, a, a rift in the relationship. Pastor, you don't understand. It's uncomfortable. My response to that is, what's the worst thing that could happen when we share the gospel in this community? What is the absolute worst thing that could happen? Number three, we should stand in humility and worship because Jesus Christ took the punishment that we all deserved. Jesus was my substitute. Jesus was your substitute. And he bore the wrath of God on the cross. He affirmed the love of God on the cross and he cooled down. He absorbed the white hot anger of God. On the cross. Number four, we should stand in humility. We should stand in humility because God gave us mercy. You remember what Paul said? He said, I am the chief of sinners. He said, The only thing he boasts about is the cross of his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, for those of us, men and women, boys and girls, if we struggle with pride, today's the day to say, I don't want to struggle with pride anymore because my only boast is in my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I stand in humility because God (laughs) gave me mercy. Finally, for all of us, we should turn from our sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. We should turn from our sin. We should turn from our sin and trust in Christ alone. For our salvation. So how are you doing on this day? I hope your response would be, Pastor, I'm I'm better than I deserve. Because apart from grace, apart from the cross, apart from Jesus, here's what I receive. I receive eternal condemnation. You see, I'm convinced that over the years that the church has has sent a white flag 
on the flagpole. And when we send the white flag, we say things like, we're willing to compromise on the character of God. We're willing to compromise on the judgment of God. We're willing to compromise on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what will that bring? It will bring more people to church. It will bring more resources to church. It will help us to have a bigger impact in the community. The problem is when we discard the character of God, when we discard the judgment of God, when we discard the gospel of God, we have nothing to offer the community. My challenge to you today would be this, is let's bring the white flag back down. And let's throw the white flag of compromise away and say, we will commit to never compromising the truth, no matter what the cost. We affirm what the scripture says about the character of God, his loving character, his just character, his merciful character, the fact that he is sovereign and long-suffering. And we embrace and celebrate the notion that God is wrath. For if God and his wrath is discarded, we recognize he can no longer be a loving God. And if we no longer have a loving God, we have, we have effectively jettisoned the gospel. May we never find ourselves in that position. May we find ourselves faithful here at Christ Fellowship. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the many passages that speak of your character, telling us that you are a God of wrath. For some of us, God, it's counterintuitive. For some of, it, some of us, it's difficult to explain. It may be hard to accept, but I pray that each person today, within the sound of my voice, would be able to affirm that indeed you are a God of wrath, that it is absolutely essential to your character. And as we move closer to points of application, God, if there's anyone here who has never trusted in Jesus, if there's someone here who has never turned from their sin, I pray that they would find refuge in the gospel. That they would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus and that you would forgive them of all their sins. That they would no longer be numbered among those who will one day endure the wrath of God in hell. I thank you for the hope that you've given us, God. I thank you, Jesus, for uh, life. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for the all the resources that we have because of your gospel. I pray that we would be uh, numbered among uh, the faithful, the saints who uh, are unwilling to compromise the truth. Help us to be unyielding. Help us to be willing to wander around in the marketplace of ideas to share the gospel of grace. And it's with these thoughts that we come now and approach the table. We remember Jesus Uh, your life and your death and your burial and your resurrection. We remember the importance of, of the bread, which points to your body. We remember the importance of the juice, which points to your blood. And while these are mere elements, we take this time very seriously and remember that we will only be satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ. Help us to taste and see that the Lord is good during this special time. In your son's worthy name we pray. Amen.